We thank you, our Father, that when we pray, that you hear us. Sometimes we will communicate to someone, and it's very apparent that they're really not hearing. The, the words are coming across, but the words are not registering. David said, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplication. He has inclined his ear to me. And we are grateful, Lord, that whenever we approach you, you incline your ear. You, you give us attention that is not divided. We are not an afterthought to you. You are deeply interested in what is on our heart, even though you already know it. We, we don't understand how that works. We, we don't get all of that, and we don't need to get it. All we really need to get is that that's not a problem for you. To give full and undivided attention to millions and millions of people at the same moment is not a problem, and you don't miss a thing. That's what makes you God. That's what's so remarkable. That's so what's, what is so incredible. And we, we worship you. We honor you. We praise you that you hear us. And even, Lord, when we're not able to quite articulate, sometimes it's frustrating because we can't quite say what we want to say and, and we get kind of hung up and, we, and so we, we think it's, why pray and it's hard. See, even when we can't say it, you know what's in our heart. You read our hearts. And Lord, even when we're not sure what to pray, or even when we're praying things that really aren't according to your will, they're, they're our will. We are thankful that the Holy Spirit prays for us. That you've given us a comforter, and the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words. We're thankful that Jesus prays for us as he's at the right hand of the Father. He lives forever to make intercession for us. We're dealing with different things. We're dealing with different issues. Every man in this room. We've all got stuff. We, we, we've all got some things in our lives that we wish, quite frankly, weren't there. We, we, we wish these circumstances would change. We wish they would improve. We wish they would go away. Uh, they stagger us, they stun us, they confuse us. We feel like we've lost all control at times. They baffle us. Sometimes they keep us up at night. It's different for every guy what those circumstances might be. But you know all about them. And that helps us. Your word says that the eye of the Lord is on, on those who fear him. Your, your eye is on those who hope for your loving kindness. We have received your loving kindness, but quite frankly, we need a fresh dose, and we need it every day. Thank you that that amazing grace never stops. Thank you that it just keeps rolling. It's just like Niagara Falls. It just keeps coming. It keeps coming. It keeps coming. It keeps coming. We don't ever want to get tired of that message. We don't want to ever get tired of that concept. We have, we, we have received the love of God that's been poured out in our hearts. And we're sinners and we're flawed and we fall short and we think we can't come back to you, but we can. So we revel tonight in the wonderful grace of Jesus. We are thankful for what Jesus did, for his sacrifice, that he sustains us, that he keeps us going. And we would pray tonight as we begin a new semester of study. Uh, this is not going to be an easy study. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult. We're going to get opposition even as we get into it. And I've already sensed it tonight to a degree. Uh, we are in a battle. We are in a spiritual battle and we have an adversary. But we thank you that you are greater. And we ask you to make this time valuable. We ask you to make this time significant. We ask you to give us what we need, to give us something, a truth, 
that will carry us through this next week and help us to fight off discouragement. That's our prayer tonight. Thank you for being such a faithful God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to commence a study tonight, not on the entire book of Ephesians, but on Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 follows a particular uh, model that most of the epistles follow. It's not uncommon, um, and you see it in Ephesians, that the first half of Ephesians, and Jim, thank you so much, the first half of Ephesians, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is laying out truth. Paul is laying out doctrine. Doctrine is important. Doctrine is the truth that we believe. Doctrine are the facts. And if you look at Ephesians 1, there is tremendous doctrine. There is tremendous truth about God. And it carries on into chapters 2 and 3. You get into the second half of the book, and you see once you get your doctrine, then the second half of the book is about application. It's about us applying the truth. It's about us living off of the truth. It's about us living off of the facts. But something happens in Ephesians. When you get into chapter 6, which is the last chapter, you find Paul shifting gears a little bit because before he winds the epistle up, he wants to punch something, and he wants to punch it really, really strong to us. And he uses the word in the New American Standard, he uses the word finally, beginning with verse 10. And then for the next 10 verses, he hits us with some stuff that is extremely significant. Um, These 10 verses are about spiritual warfare. These 10 verses are about the fact that we are in a battle. When you follow Christ, Uh, In the South, a lot of guys go to church, a lot of guys are raised in church, a lot of guys are raised in Sunday school, a lot of guys know the drills, Uh, they know the lingo, they know the language, they got hymns memorized, but when you quit being just a southern church guy and become a follower of Christ, when Christ is in your life, when Christ is first, and you're seeking Him first, uh, here's what happens, when you get serious about Christ, The enemy gets serious about you. If you're just a church guy, you're just a church guy. If you're just a southern cultural Christian, well, there's a whole bunch of guys like that. But if Christ is central, when that moment happens in your life and you begin to pursue after the Lord and you become a disciple of Christ, what happens is now you have an adversary and you have an enemy because you belong to Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, says this. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That you might be able to stand firm against the methods of the devil. uh, Against the strategies of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. A lot of times we think our struggle is with people, people that are antagonistic to the gospel, people that are antagonistic to the truth. But this, and oftentimes because they're the representatives. But what Paul's going to tell us is this warfare that we are in. We are fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. And and this fight, it's it's not primarily people, but there's something going on behind the scenes. And this is what Paul alludes to when he says our fight, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, um, that's nonsense to a lot of people. There are a lot of churches, especially in the South, because there are a lot of churches in the South, there are a lot of churches that if you mention a devil, if you mention Satan, uh, they'll laugh at you. 
I had been reading over the Christmas break um, a book on the theology of B.B. Uh, Warfield. He was uh, one of the great scholars at Princeton Theological Seminary. I think he died in 1920. But um, Princeton used to, it's no longer, but Princeton used to be a bastion of biblical fidelity. It was a seminary that stood firmly on the Word of God. There were some great theologians uh, through the years at Princeton Theological Seminary. Unfortunately, that school has departed from the Word of God. And, and Warfield was, uh, of all those great theologians, all of the Hodges, he, he, he was the giant. And what God used him to do was to take on, uh, in, in the 1800s, uh, a whole school of biblical criticism developed in Germany. And uh, these different, quote-unquote, men who were biblical scholars, who in essence did not believe the Bible, who did not believe in the divinity of Christ, they began to write, and they began to come up with what they would call higher criticism. And what they began to do was they began to uh, start a movement to take the supernatural out of Christianity. So you could be a Christian but not believe that Jesus was God. You could be a Christian but not believe in the virgin birth. You could be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of Christ, the physical, literal, bodily resurrection. And here today in Dallas or wherever you live, you can go to churches on Easter, and they will have an Easter service, and they'll have choirs, and there will be a lot of people there, and they will preach on the resurrection, but they will make it very clear, now it wasn't a literal resurrection. He didn't literally come out of the tomb. Yes, he did. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection didn't occur, if it wasn't a literal bodily resurrection, and by the way, he appeared to over 500 at one time, they saw him. Paul said, Paul said if there's no resurrection, we're fools. Why come to church on Easter morning? Why not sleep in and then go to brunch? If Christ didn't come out of that tomb, if he didn't conquer death, there's no Christianity. It's a sham. But you see, the German higher critics in the 1800s began to say, well, you can't trust the Bible, and it doesn't mean this. And, and Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, this giant intellect of a man who had a great heart for God, he took him on, and he beat him. Now, what was going on there? Well, that was spiritual warfare. And what's interesting is that battle is still going on today, because churches and schools, just in Texas, there are schools that were built on the Word of God. They would teach you the Word of God, but no longer do they teach the Word of God. They have shifted. They have changed. Now, what's that all about? we got spiritual warfare going on here. They'll say there isn't a literal Satan, but there is a literal Satan. He tempted Jesus with three temptations. The, the attempt is to move the supernatural. It's to remove the supernatural from the Word of God. It's to remove the supernatural from Christianity. It's still going on today. We hear the term today, uh, fundamentalism. Where does that term come from? It goes back to the 1920s. There was a, uh, was it Lyman Stewart? Was the man who owned the Union Oil Company in California. Uh, he was a committed Christian, but he was concerned about the liberal attack on the Word of God, and he got solid evangelical scholars from different denominations, and they put together a series of books, and the books were called the fundamentals. Here are the fundamentals of the Christian faith, which is all based on the supernatural. And it was a response to the German criticism that was spreading around the world and spreading throughout the United States and spreading through churches. That's spiritual warfare. There are different levels to this spiritual warfare. Verse 13. Oh, yeah, hey, and we're all involved in spiritual warfare. Now, we're not going to be involved in it like B.B. Warfield was, we're going to be dealing with it in a little different area, in a little different way, because we're in a different sphere. But we have to understand, when there are attacks on the Bible like that, who is behind it? The enemy is. I think it was C.S. Lewis said that people make two mistakes about the devil. The first mistake is to not believe in his existence. See, if you are to be accepted in the academic world today, you cannot believe in the existence of Satan. They'll laugh you right out of the classroom. Because you see, 
We live uh, in an age of materialism. If you can't see it, if you can't feel it, it can't be true. They have completely removed the supernatural. So Lewis said, there are two mistakes you can make about Satan. The first one is to not believe in his existence, and he doesn't care if you don't believe in him. That doesn't bother him, because if you don't believe in him, he's got you right where he wants you. You don't believe in the supernatural. But the other extreme, and is on the other end of the spectrum, is to have an excessive curiosity that is unhealthy in regards to Satan and his works. And there are some Christian people that get so intoxicated with the study of Satan that they forget everything else in the Word of God, and everything is a demon, and everything is this, and everything is... and they lose balance. We want to find the balance. How do you find the balance? What's the next verse? Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. And then he says it again. Stand firm, therefore. Now watch this. Uh, Paul was chained to a Roman soldier. And, and what he does is he's looking at a Roman soldier, and he, soldiers were everywhere in the Roman Empire. He was familiar with them, he was familiar with the equipment, and what he does is he starts to take the figure of a Roman soldier, and he says, put on the armor, just like a Roman soldier does, and he delineates the pieces. He says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. They had a belt of truth. Their, their robes were free-flowing, but when you go in the battle, what do you do? You, you hitch up your robes, and you tighten up the belt. Otherwise, you're going to trip on what you got. So you just hitch it up, and you ratchet it up. Then he says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We'll get into this later. He said, when will we get to the breastplate of righteousness? I have no clue. I'm a little concerned about this study, time-wise. I'll tell you why. As I've looked at this, these ten verses, uh, William Gurnall, one of the uh, Puritan preachers, pre-Puritan preachers of the 1500s, uh, wrote a book called The Christian in Complete Armor. It's on the ten verses of this passage. Uh, you can get it in hardback. It's 1,200 pages, double-columned. Uh, so if it was normal size, it'd be 2,400-page, 20, uh, one-volume work on ten verses. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who pastored at Westminster Chapel in London, who died in 1981, Martin Lloyd-Jones, on these ten verses, preached 52 Sundays on ten verses. If you buy his uh, commentary series on the entire book of Ephesians, which I believe is eight volumes, the last two volumes, the last two volumes are on these ten verses. There's a lot here. There's a lot of meat. There's a lot of stuff. I'm thinking we'll be done with this 2018, 2019. It won't take that long. Uh, the breastplate, the Roman breastplate, actually had a front and a back piece to it. Then there's another piece. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The Roman soldiers, their sandals were custom made. They had cleats because they could not afford to lose their footing in battle. If you saw the Rose Bowl and you saw TCU win, uh, if you were paying close attention, you notice that early on, and that Rose Bowl field is a remarkable field. I first went to the Rose Bowl in 1966. And uh, the best weather in California is in January, February. It's perfect conditions. And man, do they take care of that field. And TCU uh, had been given, uh, I guess, as the commentator said, just the day before the game, a the whole team was given a whole new set of Nike cleats. I mean, custom, you know, just sharp, just... They were wonderful cleats, except they didn't hold. And if you watch that game, you notice that the TCU players kept slipping. The other team wasn't slipping. And it caused a lot of concern because they couldn't get their feet under them. The backs would go to make a cut, and they'd go down. 
Footwear is important, especially in battle. You've got to have the right kind of cleats. Some of you real old guys in here, you real, real old guys, I mean you old guys. Remember when the New York Giants played the Chicago Bears on an icy field for the NFL championship? Do you remember that? Yeah, most of us don't. Um, it, it's, uh, I don't think anybody in here would probably wouldn't be alive. It was in the early days of the NFL. But what happened, it was, it, the footing was so bad that during, and, and neither team could keep their, uh, anyway, one of the, if I'm not mistaken, it was the New York Giants sent out some guys to find tennis shoes. And they changed shoes at halftime, and they, and they won the game. And it all had to do with their feet, and it all had to do with their footwear. You've got to have the right footwear to stand firm in battle. Oh, and then he goes on and says this. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith. Again, we'll get into this later in more detail, but this shield of faith was probably about four feet long and about two and a half feet wide. It's a big shield. But they needed, they needed big shields because they had missiles being fired at them, which they called fiery darts. Note this. Uh, in addition, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Not just arrows, but flaming arrows. You've got to put that four-foot shield up to protect yourself. Oh, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's only one offensive weapon. It's the Word of God. That's why we do Bible study. It's our offensive weapon. And then in verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This is where we're going over the next few weeks. In 1914, a newspaper advertisement was in all of the London newspapers, and it created quite a stir. Here's all that it said. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return is doubtful. Honor and recognition, honor and recognition in case of success. That was it. The man who uh, put that in the newspaper was the great explorer Shackleton, who was taking another attempt to go across that Antarctic uh, ice cap. He'd been there before and had not done well. He got 5,000 applications. 5,000. He picked 27 men. And if you've ever read the book Endurance, in fact, this book was written in 1959, and not too many years ago, James Dobson bought the rights to that book. The reason he bought the rights is that there were certain portions of the story that were left out. Uh, it, it was a remarkable story of endurance because these men made their way down, and before they got there, as they went through this, around the Cape, and they got into this horrendous sea, they were encapsulated with ice, and they couldn't move, and they were trapped. Um, the question was, could they endure? They, they were considered to be dead for over a year, and they were still alive. It, it was a remarkable story of how they made it, the original author, when he told the story, ignored some of their journals where it talked about their trust in God and their trust in the scriptures and their trust in the providence of God. One of the reasons that Dobson got the rights was so that he can include that in there. But it's a remarkable story of endurance. It's, you, you read the story and it just they have one defeat after another, after another, after another. And, and when they finally made it, when they finally, they knew there was a whaling station, it was almost two years that they survived. Uh, where they were, there was almost perpetual darkness. The temperature would hit 100 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. If you can imagine such a thing. I mean, we're dying out here and it's 19 in the mornings. 
They survived for almost two years. And when Shackleton took two of his men and they were making their way across mountains, up a mountain range and down the other side, they thought there was a whaling village. And, and, and again, I'm not even portraying this. I can't even give it its due. But it was such a staggering story of survival that they, they came down this other side. There was a frozen waterfall. Somehow they got down and they saw some lights of a whaling station. And as they walked up to the whaling station, Shackleton asked for the name of the man that was at that whaling station the last time and in charge. And these men are shocked seeing these three men who look like they have just come out of caves somewhere. And he asked for the man, and the man responded, he's not here, but the man in charge is such and such. Could I see him? They take him to his house. They knock on the door. The man opens his door, and Shackleton says, I am Shackleton. And this tough whaler, this tough man, used to the elements, used to a hard life, when he heard the words, I am Shackleton, he broke down in tears. He couldn't believe they were alive. Then they got a boat, and they went back and got all their guys out. Every one of them survived. It's an incredible story of survival. Now, what does that have to do with Ephesians 6? I don't see anything. <laughs> Except this. They were in a war against the elements. We're in a war against unseen forces. Two observations about spiritual warfare. Um, the first is this. Spiritual warfare is supernatural. It is supernatural. Um, if you have your Bible, turn with me, if you would, to Second uh, Kings 6. Yeah, I'll be honest with you guys. I've been thinking about this study for four, five, six weeks. And uh, about doing this study on spiritual warfare. I've been very reluctant to do it. Uh, can I tell you why? When you do a study on spiritual warfare, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get spiritual warfare. You're just, it, it, it's just going to heat up. That's all there is to it. It's just how it works. Um, and even a couple days ago, I was talking with Mary, and I was saying to her, you know, I'm not sure I really want to do this study. She said, why is that? I said, you know, I don't know. I just, I just, I'm just hesitant. Uh, and I've been beaten so often in spiritual warfare. And then I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones on Ephesians 6, and he made the comment that all the great men of the Old Testament, every one of them were beaten by Satan. Every one of them. At a certain point, Satan tempted David. He tempted David to number everybody in Israel. And his people, his, his guys are saying, why are you doing this? You know why he was doing it? Because of pride. God had given him victory and victory and victory and victory and victory and victory, and he's sitting around wondering, I wonder how many battles I've won. I wonder how much success I've had. I wonder how many people I've captured. I wonder how much growth has taken place in my administration. And you know what he did? He went ahead and numbered them. And his best men said, don't do it. He went ahead and did it anyway. It was a temptation of Satan. It was pride. It was ambition. It was selfish ambition. One of the things about the enemy is not only the supernatural aspect, but the subtlety. But this is something we need to hear, and it's something we need to study, and it's in the Word of God for a reason. 2 Kings chapter 6. And it's unlike me when I come to do a Bible study to walk off without my Bible. I always try to bring my Bible when I'm going to teach the Bible. It's just kind of a basic principle I, I, I attempt to apply. What did I do tonight? I walked off without my Bible. Um, so I had to go into Charlton's office to get a Bible. As I was in Charlton's office, uh, I left my two books there that I was going to quote from. So just before we prayed, I found Jim Gunn and said, Jim, I left a book 
by Oren Lutzer in there, could you find it for me? What I forgot to tell him was that I also left Dobson's book on Shackleton in there, which I was going to quote, but it's still in there. So let's pray and dismiss and go home. We'll work our way through it, guys. Second, uh, Second Kings 6. Now let's see if I can work out a Charlton's Bible instead of mine. Here's what's happening, beginning with verse 8. There's a king of Aram. They are the enemies of Israel. And what's happening, the king of Aram is getting upset because as he plans military attacks against Israel, every time he makes a plan and he shows up to ambush the army of Israel and surprise them, the army of Israel is already in place and they shock the king of Aram and they ambush him. And he's trying to figure out who the traitor is in his midst that is telling the king of Israel what is going on. Um, verse 11. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Now the liberal scholars would say, Well, this couldn't happen. This couldn't take place. Why not? Because it's supernatural. Well, it did take place. So Elisha... God would reveal to Elisha what the king of Aram was planning. King of, uh, Elisha would then pass it on to the king of Israel. It was, it was a counterintelligence operation. Verse 13, so he said, go and see where he is, Elisha, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, he was going out to get the Jerusalem Post or something early in the morning, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. You can imagine this guy. He's just getting up. He's going out to get the paper, whatever. He hasn't even his coffee yet. He looks up and around the mountains. Everywhere is the army of the king of Aram. His servant said to Elisha, Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Verse 16, Elisha answers, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now you can imagine what this guy's thinking. He's looking at Elisha, he's looking at himself. He goes. And then he looks at what? Thousands? Look at verse 18. Actually, 17. Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. What did Elisha do? He walked the whole army right into the camp of the king of Israel. That's what he did. It's called supernatural. But my point is, when his eyes were opened, he saw. He saw what we normally don't see. See, we think it's just material. It's, it's, we think it's what we see and what we touch. But there, are, there, there, is a, there is a world that we don't see, that we're not privy to, unless we're aware of what it says in the Word of God. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. There is a spirit world. See, that's the supernatural. Something else about spiritual warfare. First, Spiritual warfare is supernatural. Secondly, spiritual warfare, as Kent Hughes has pointed out, is personal. It's personal. Uh, flip over, if you would, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. There was a situation where someone was in sin in the church. Paul had written some instructions. The person had repented. There was concern about the person not being forgiven. That's the context. Paul says in verse 10, but one, who, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now watch this, verse 11 so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, and we are not ignorant of his schemes. Satan has a methodology. Satan has schemes. 
I started out by saying, when a man gets serious about Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. Years ago, when I did the book Point Man, I said two things in the opening chapter to men with families. The first thing I said to them uh, was about their spiritual leadership, and the first thing I said was this, you should understand that you have an enemy, and the enemy has a twofold strategy. Number one, he wants to alienate and eventually sever the relationship that you enjoy with your wife. If you're married, the scripture says, for this cause a man shall leave his father. How many of you guys are married? Let me see your hands. Okay. Now, some of you have just been married. Some of you have been married 10, 20 years. Some of you have been married 40 years. Some of you 50, 60 years. doesn't matter how long you've been married. This fits. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave, cling to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. So God's plan is that the two become one. Let me tell you what the enemy's plan is. The enemy's plan is that the two who have become one become two again. For every guy in this room who's married, what the enemy's strategy, one of the enemy's strategies, one of the enemy's schemes, if you're newly married, if you're married with kids, if uh, uh, you've got the empty nest, if uh, you know, you, you've got grandkids, no matter where you are in the marriage continuum, the enemy has a strategy. He has a method. He has a scheme. He's trying to work on you in regard to your marriage. And what is it? He wants to alienate you from your wife, frustrate you with one another, and get you to the point where you decide, that's it, I've had enough, I'm out of here, and it's severed. That's what he wants to do. And it only takes one to reach that point for a marriage to end. It used to be that both parties had to give consent for there to be a divorce, but we weaken the divorce laws, and now it just takes one. You may not want the divorce, but if your spouse wants it, there's nothing you can do to stop it. Now, I want to say to you, what's going on in a spouse's heart and mind who at one point committed to Christ and committed to you, who has now walked away? I'm telling you, that's spiritual warfare. And there are influences there going on in their mind and in their heart that are not being seen on the surface, but it's spiritual warfare. The second strategy that I talked about in that book was that not only does he want to alienate and sever the relationship you enjoy with your wife, but he also wants to alienate and sever the relationship you have with your children. Now, when our kids are small, you know, Christmas is fun with little kids. Little two, three, four-year-old. Well, a buddy of mine was telling me he has a little 18-month-old grandson. And what they gave him for Christmas, they gave him the empty boxes that they gave to the four-year-old. He said he loved those empty boxes. He's just playing with it. He was as happy as the four-year-old, you see. It's fun when kids are little. You know, when our kids are small, when they're tiny, two, three, four, five years old, you know what they think about their dads? They think their daddy's hung the moon. Don't they? Sure they do. But let them hit 12, 13, 14. You know what they want? They want their daddies to go to the moon. Do they not? Yeah, why? Because you're in a new phase of life. It's called adolescence. It's called the teenage years. And, and believe me, the enemy will work overtime in the hearts and minds of kids that are at that stage of life to put a wedge in between that child and their father. They'll, they'll work overtime. See, he's always trying to put a wedge in between you and your wife. He's always trying to put a wedge in between you and your kids. And it's just not the normal stuff of life, but there are unseen forces at work, especially if you're following Christ and Christ is the center of your home. You should not be surprised by it. You should expect it. You will have to go to war for your kids. Sometimes you have to go to war for your marriage to save your marriage. When kids go through tough... We had a great Christmas this year. We had an unbelievable Christmas. Rachel just got married in September. Uh, Josh is getting married this Saturday. Um, New Year's Day, my other son John got engaged. Looks like that'll be May. It's three weddings in nine months. Thankfully, just one daughter out of the bunch. <laughs> and they were all around at Christmas. Man, we had a blast, but it was just, it was great. And, and Mary and I, throughout Christmas, we were looking at each other and said, we're so blessed, and we are blessed. Now, ten years ago was the Christmas from hell. Because what was happening with my two boys? 
And if John was here, he'd tell you. He, he, he's given me permission to tell. He was away from the Lord, wrong friends, wrong stuff, doing some drugs. He shouldn't, you know, all kinds of stuff. It's like I lost this kid overnight. And then he's impacting his younger brother. I mean, I'll never forget the turmoil at our, and then Mary and I, we've always tried to present a united front to our kids. That's what you do with kids. Even if you don't agree with each other, you're united in front of them, right? And then you talk later. But you don't let them see the, the discord. And suddenly, we were, Mary and I got divided over how to handle the situation. She had a different perspective than I had. That, that was a first for us. That was a horrific time. Horrific. And then we look back and see what God's done. And we praise him and we thank him. But I was desperate. You talk about prayer. I, I, I would set aside days to fast and pray because my kids were on the line. I was asking God. I was desperate for God to save them. I'd lost all my wisdom. I didn't have much to begin with. See, that's, it, it's, you guys have been there in different ways and different times. We are not ignorant of his schemes. Um, take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. This is a sobering verse, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, simply says this, Therefore let him who stands take heed, lest he fall. We, we have all seen men that have been champions for Christ. We have all seen men that have stood strong for the gospel who have had terrible falls. Terrible falls. Maybe you've seen it with a pastor you knew or a pastor that had an impact on your life, and he went down. And he went down big time. You know, it's interesting to me. It says, let him who stands... Well, back in Ephesians 6, it keeps talking about standing firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. But see, here's, here's the problem. When you stand firm, you have to take heed. Let him who stands take heed, lest he fall. You see, we have an enemy. We have an adversary. And he is deceptive, and he is subtle. i got a question for you. This, this, is, this, is, this, is, a good, this is a good question to ask yourself, and I try to ask myself this question on a fairly regular basis. If I were the enemy, and I was trying to develop a scheme to bring me down, what device, what scheme would I use in order to bring me down? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What would be a good way to bring you down? It would have to be subtle. It would have to be something that's not necessarily on the surface. I think that's a great question to answer because, you see, we, we, we need to guard our hearts. Guard your heart. From, for out of the heart is the wellspring of life. What are your tendencies? Where are you particularly weak? Um, where do you tend to have blind spots? where are you vulnerable, I guess is what I'm asking. Where are you personally vulnerable? You say, I don't know. Have you got somebody close to you? Have you got a good friend? It might be good to ask them, hey, where do you think, where do you think I'm vulnerable? I think that's a very good thing to do because we're in spiritual warfare. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. None of us want to go down. Is that a possibility? Yeah, because we have a subtle foe. It's interesting to me, in, in the book of Ephesians, John Stott has said this. He has said the first five chapters of the book of Ephesians are about the plan and purposes of God. That's the first five chapters. You get to chapter 6, and chapter 6, the heart of chapter 6, is Satan's opposition to the plans and purposes of God. God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you. And once again, when we start following Christ, what is the enemy going to do? 
He's going to try and thwart God's plan and God's purposes for each of us. Erwin Lutzer is pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. He's a friend. He's a tremendous Bible scholar. He's written a book called The Serpent of Paradise. And it's uh, the subtitle, The Incredible Story of How Satan's Rebellion Serves God's Purposes. And his introduction to his book is tremendous. I I would like it to serve as an introduction to our study. Allow me to read a couple paragraphs. Lutzer says, uh, the subtitle here is, Why This Book? He says, this book attempts to give an overview of the career of Satan and his interaction with the Almighty. It traces his fall from an exalted position to his defeat by Christ and to his demise in everlasting shame and contempt. It attempts to prove that Satan always loses even when he wins. He then says this, My first premise is that God has absolute sovereignty in his universe. This means that even evil is a part of the larger plan of God. That's interesting because uh, for some of us, our hearts are broken by evil right now. Maybe there's someone in your family who was caught in some evil that's just breaking your heart. They don't even see it. They know the truth, but they're rebellious. You know, our God is so great and our God is so powerful that God can use, that God is the God who uses evil eventually for good. That's what, that, 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 sometimes that's the only hope that you have. Joseph said to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for, for good. He says, we can have a proper theology of the devil only if we have a proper theology of God. Only when we stand in awe of God will we find it unnecessary to be in awe of Satan. The greater our God, the smaller our devil. Interesting to me that this passage, Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 10, doesn't start with Satan, it starts with God. And how does it begin? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You see, the key to spiritual warfare and the, and the, the key to fighting the battle is to know the strength and the power, and the majesty, and the awesomeness of our God. The attributes of God. That he is in absolute control of the entire universe. He's in absolute control of the world. He's in absolute control of of good and bad. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But he's in absolute, he is the sovereign. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. His throne is in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. That's our God. So He rules and He reigns, even over the works of Satan. I love that line, the greater our God, the smaller our devil. He says, my second premise is that God uses our conflict with Satan to develop our characters. These struggles give us the opportunity of having our faith tested. God would not throw us into the conflict if he did not also give us the resources that we need to stand against the enemy. That is not to say that we always avail ourselves of the assets that are ours as Christians. I have known my share of failure in battling the Prince of Darkness. But I I interpret these failures as my responsibility, a responsibility I share with other believers who are part of the same body of Christ. Last paragraph. The biblical portrait of Satan is that he does indeed have great power, but that it is always limited by the purposes and plans of God. It is a picture of a proud being who has already been humbled. It is the picture of a being whose greatest asset in his war with us is our own ignorance. So why are we doing this study? So that we will not be ignorant of the armor we've been given in order to fight the good fight and experience victory in spiritual battle. Because we will have battle. But we don't have to walk around defeated. We can actually be victorious. But you can't have your armor hanging up on the wall, on the mantle, over your fireplace. you got to take the armor down, and you got to put it on, and you got to go in the battle. And if you go in the battle without it, you're toast. John Calvin said this in regard to Ephesians 6 and spiritual warfare. Where we resist human strength, sword is opposed to sword, man contends with man, force is met by force, and skill by skill. But here the case is very different. For our enemies are such as no human power can withstand. 
God has all power. Satan has some power more than you and I have, if left to our own devices. This is sobering stuff, isn't it? How many of you guys, I'm just, I'm just curious. Um, in your life over the last five years, how many of you guys can look over the last five years and see evidences in your life that you have been in spiritual warfare? Raise them high. Okay, good. That's why this is important. Now, the next time we go into warfare, and by the way, this warfare, by the way, it never ends. Now, it gets more intense at certain times than others, but it never ends. It never goes away. It's 24-7. So what do I want to do? I want to learn. Maybe last time I looked at it, you know what? I, 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 didn't, I didn't utilize the armor. I didn't use that piece. I didn't use the shield. I didn't, and those fiery darts. I haven't been using my shield. I got to get that shield up there, man. Or, you know, Satan condemns me for my past sin. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I lived that kind of life. I was such a, my gosh. I mean, you got to get on that breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. It's not you, it's Jesus. Right? You put on his righteousness, not yours. We're, we're, we're filthy rags. But you put on, you clothe yourself in Christ. That's how you fight that stuff. That's how you fight that. I'm nothing. I'm terrible. I did it. Yes, you were that, but you're not that anymore. It's amazing grace, is it not? I get pumped up on this stuff. Because it saves your life, doesn't it? It saves your life. It's the greatest news in the world. Okay. I'm going to make two observations as we talk tonight, as we're just getting into this study. Now, now how does he start it? He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Let's just do two things tonight. Number one, I want you to observe Satan's sin. The first sin was not in the Garden of Eden. The first sin was in eternity past. Um, turn with me, if you would, to Ezekiel 28. There are two passages that give us a glimpse of what occurred with Satan and in regard to his background and in regard to his sin. Satan was, Satan is an angel. Angels were created. Angels are not equal with God. Uh, there are, if you will, levels of angels. There are the great angels, Michael and Gabriel. Satan would have been in that realm. In Ezekiel 28, we have something very interesting because we get a glimpse of what occurred in eternity past with Satan. Now, let me read a quote to you from Larry Richards to set this up. He says, in both passages, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, the prophets begin by addressing a contemporary political figure. And then they suddenly shift their focus to look directly at a shadowy figure who stands behind the human ruler. That's very important because, see, we see all this stuff that goes on in our country. Other people are in their countries and they see this political stuff and all this, and they see these figures, they see these individuals. But what we forget is there is a figure behind that individual. There are spiritual forces, there are principalities, there are rulers, there is a spiritual battle. Years ago, a friend of mine was talking with a gentleman who was spending a lot of time in the White House, and he told my friend, when I go in there, it's the place where I feel demonic oppression every time I'm there. That's what stood out to him. Oh, you're going to the White House. How wonderful. No, that's where I feel demonic oppression. Why? Because there are principalities. There is the demonic bureaucracy in place behind certain political figures. Not all, but some. Some know Christ. Some have been set apart by Christ. Others don't. It's like any other 
realm and human existence. A prophet's focus, Richard says, is on a present event or personality when suddenly his viewpoint shifts and he sees beyond the present into the past or to the future. The present event or personality serves as a lens through which the prophet sees a common theme worked out on a far grander scale. With that, go to Ezekiel 28, if you would. It's actually a lamentation against the king of Tyre in verse 12. But then he says this, and this can't apply to just a human king. He says, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Look at verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you. 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Go over to Isaiah 14. Here, the leader of Babylon is being addressed. Uh, 28, 14. Yeah, Isaiah 14. Well, you get so used to your own Bible, don't you? Where everything is. Then you use another one, and it's a little more difficult. Let me find where I'm looking. Yeah, here we go. Now, if you look at verse... If you look at verse 4, you'll see he's talking in regard to the king of Babylon. But there's another shadowy figure behind. Go to verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nation. He was part of the angelic host. He was one of the most beautiful of the angels. One of the supreme angels. And something happened to Satan. This created being. And when, it's, when it says in verse 13, you said in your heart, note the I wills. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Watch this. I will make myself like the most high. He wanted to become God. His exalted position wasn't enough for him. He wanted more. And as we put all of this together, and then you look over, is it Revelation 12? It seems as though he took a third of the angels with him in rebellion to God, and that makes up the demonic host. And there is a demonic bureaucracy that's mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6. You've got your middle managers, if you will. You've got your executive vice presidents. You've got the hierarchy. Satan can only be in one place at one time. But he has many minions. That's what the Bible teaches. So Satan is a fallen angel. He's not equal with God. Quickly, let's observe Satan's names. His names. The word Satan means adversary. Another common term for Satan in the New Testament is the devil, which means slanderer or false accuser. Other titles by which Satan is identified in the New Testament includes the tempter, 1 Thessalonians 3.5, the Ezelbub, Matthew 12.24, the wicked one, Matthew 13. He's called the ruler of this world in John 12.31. He's called the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's called Belial in 2 Corinthians 6. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. And he's called the accuser of our brethren in Revelation chapter 12. And he is all those things. By the way, in John 8, 44, here's something else about Satan. Jesus said to the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Speaking of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning. He has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and the father of lies. I want to say a word to you. He will lie to you about your status before Christ. He will accuse you. He will come after you. He will say it to you at times, what right do you have to call yourself a Christian? 
You, you continually fall back into this sin. You continually fail. You can continue after God has been gracious. How can you go back to God and ask for forgiveness again? You are a failure. You're miserable. And when you begin to turn on yourself, and when you begin to loathe yourself, no, that's the work of Satan. He is a liar. The fact is, you stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is your advocate, and Jesus is your defense attorney. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But whatever sin it is you're dealing with, whatever sin that, that you're, you're still fighting and still struggling with mastery over, you know what? When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus paid for that sin. The amazing thing about what Christ did on the cross, when he died for your sins, how many of your sins were future when Jesus died? All of them. That's an amazing fact, because Jesus paid it all. Did he not? Yes, he did. Do we want to sin? No, we don't. We don't want to sin. Do we still struggle with sin? Yes, we do. And when you get so down on yourself, and the enemy accuses you and says, you're not even a Christian. How can you name the name of Christ? Just know this. Jesus died for that sin on the cross. It's been pointed out that when Jesus died on the cross, here I am today. I can say that Jesus, when he was on that cross, he paid for the sins of my past. When he was on that cross, he paid for the sins of today. And I'll tell you this, Jesus has paid for the sins I haven't committed yet. I have sins in my future, and so do you, and Jesus paid it all. And someone says, oh, don't sow that, they'll just go out and sin. No, they won't. Not if they really know him. Not if they really love him. But man, will Satan ride us? Will he scare us? Does he go about like a roaring lion seeking? He'll, he'll devour our joy. He'll devour our peace. He'll, dev he'll just devour us. He'll kill us. In so many different ways. In so many different ways does he try to destroy us. And he does have power. But our God is greater. I love what Luther says. When God is great, the devil is small. Martin Luther used to say the devil is God's devil. I like that. You know, maybe 10 years ago, I, uh, we have a creek that borders our property. And I had my cow, a couple cows, get out. And I was trying to figure out how they got out. And I had my two retrievers with me, and, and the creek bed was dry. And I, I figured out where they got out, and I wanted to know, I wonder, and we'd gotten them back, but I was trying to figure, well, when they went down there, how far did they get out, and then how'd they get out? So I'm walking this dry creek bed, and I had never walked that section before. And I'm probably, probably a mile from our house. I'm just walking this dry creek bed, and it's kind of going like this and going like this, and keep an eye out for snakes, but I'm not seeing anything. I'm just trying to figure out where those cows got out, because we found them about two miles away from the house. And I'm walking in that creek bed, and I'm going around here, and I'm going around here, and I come around up here, and there's kind of a rise, and I went up the bank, and all of a sudden, there's a pit bull who sees me and charges me. But he's not by himself. There were 15 to 20 pit bulls on this guy's property who was an NFL football player. Not Michael Vick, another one. And I had heard he lived down the road a piece. I didn't know where he lived, but now I knew. Because I suddenly have got not one pit bull, but I've got 10, 15, probably 20 pit bulls coming at me full blast. The little piggy went wee, wee, wee all the way home. <laughs> and it was all I could do to not emulate the little piggy. My first thought was complete panic and fear. And then, I, 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 and then something very interesting happened. Those pit bulls that were coming at me with all their might, I mean, they, they were coming at me with everything. Suddenly, you know what happened? They hit that end of chain. And it pulled them back and about snapped their necks. And I was okay. You hear all the time about people being torn to shreds by pit bulls, don't you? Was it frightening? Was it a real threat? Could harm have been done? Yeah, but you know what? They were chained. Let me tell you something. Satan is real. Satan prowls about seeking who may he desire. 
But you know what? He's God's devil. He's God's pit bull. And he's got him on a tether. And he's got him on a chain. And God is greater. So I don't have to live in fear. I can live in peace. And I can live in confidence. I can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's where we're going, guys. Let's bow our heads. We're grateful, Father, for your word, for the power of your word. We're all dealing with different issues on a daily basis. Sometimes we're aware that spiritual battle is taking place, and other times we're unaware. We just think we're dealing with a difficult person or a difficult individual, but oftentimes there's something behind it. We're not looking for the devil in every situation. We're just simply trying to be wise. We don't want to be ignorant of his schemes. We don't want to give him undue influence or undue focus. We simply want to be men who walk in the power of the living God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Give us your peace, give us your strength, give us your confidence as we leave this place. Encourage our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.